Oh, hello everyone. I've never been introduced as Gramps before, Ruth. Never. Came close last night. I was in Joburg and a lady said hello to me at the door and said, where have you come from? I said, I've been in Maritzburg. And she says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Durban afterwards. She says, wow, don't ever let people look down on you because of your age, she says. been a great week, hasn't it, all over the country where leaders have been getting together like this. And what I'd like to do by way of introduction is quote two speakers that I've heard in the last 48 hours. The first was a young guy in Marisburg yesterday who reminded us of that movie Dunkirk. On the 15th of May, 1940, Winston Churchill was woken up by phone call from the French president with the tragic news that he said they'd been defeated by Adolf Hitler. Churchill was incredulous. He said, there's no way because Britain had committed 200,000 troops to the continent. But somehow the president explained Adolf Hitler pulled a sneaky move and he had breached the Allied lines. 300 bombers were taking out the fleeing Allied troops. So Winston Churchill beat a hasty retreat to the king. He said to King George, relayed the news. And King George said to him, well, there's only one thing we can do, and that is pray. Now, Churchill, being a man of very little faith, <laughs> surprisingly agreed. And so they declared a time of prayer and fasting. So across the whole of England, you can see photos of this, every chapel Every cathedral, hundreds of people lined up outside calling out to God. The evacuation plan wasn't Churchill's idea. He, he didn't agree with it because he said that the bombers would take out any craft that tried to evacuate 300,000 Allied troops off the beaches of Dunkirk. But eventually they persuaded him. But there was an added problem, and you remember the story, if you watch the movie, the ships, the naval ships couldn't get in close because it was a shallow beach. So they sent out this request to anyone in Britain who had a craft. Luxury boats, fishing boats, anything with a motor that could get across the channel. And they enlisted absolutely everybody for this rescue effort. But there was a problem. Imagine being enlisted. Imagine taking your luxury craft off to France, and you know there's 300 German bombers in the sky. You must have been filled with dread. Anyway, three history records, three miracles that took place over that time of prayer. Firstly, inexplicably, Adolf Hitler stopped marching. Three days. Secondly, it began to rain, and the bombers couldn't get into the sky. And thirdly, that channel who is known for being, you know, quite turbulent at times, historians say was as flat as a bathtub. So these vessels could come in. And the result was 330-something thousand troops were evacuated off Dunkirk. Incredible rescue effort. As he was relaying that story, I began to think through the great rescue effort that God has enlisted us to. And then another preacher who I heard this week who's sitting here today reminded us that in, in Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, 
gives us power to be his witnesses. That word witness is the same word that's translated martyrs. The Holy Spirit comes upon you, very much like those who were in their motorboats heading off across the channel on a rescue mission. It was a matter of life and death. Could be your death. So when we enlisted with this great commission, not only is it a matter of life and death, but, but there's very possibly trouble en route. Very possibly life-threatening trouble en route. Reputation-threatening trouble en route. And yet that's what we enlisted to. So the day that you were saved, you were enlisted. Not for a comfortable life, but for this great rescue mission. You're not just enlisted once. God enlists you again and again for projects and things and ventures and journeys. Torgal mentioned Acts 16, Paul being enlisted to go to Macedonia. Do, do you know what happened to Paul? He had a dream and he saw a Macedonian man who was pleading with him to come and help him. And so this is what it says. So he concluded that God wanted them to go and share the gospel in Macedonia. So he takes a ship, takes another ship, goes across land, winds up in a place called Philippi. Goes down to a place where expected people to be praying, sees a number of people there and leads a prominent businesswoman to the Lord. She gets baptized, the whole family gets baptized. They get taken off to her house. He sort of uses that as a base, it looks like, for the next couple of days. And he goes out there on this great rescue mission, wanting to see people receive the gospel and their lives eternally changed. And a demon-possessed slave girl starts to shout at them. The, the one thing I don't understand in that text is why it took him two days to deliver the girl. But it says after a couple of days, he got irritated. I wonder what an irritated Paul looked like. Well, the fruit of an irritated Paul is he cast out the demon. And then the owners got very agitated, got the governing authorities there. There was a court case. They were flogged. They were chucked into jail. You know the story. And then God releases them from jail miraculously. The jailer gets saved. They get this royal escort out of Philippi. And then this is what the next chapter says. They went straight to Thessalonica and carried on preaching. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had to reflect back about that dream, that call, this was the fruit of that call. This was the fruit of that enlisting. Beatings, demons shouting at you, trumped up court cases, chucked into prison, you would be forgiven for saying, I missed that one. You'd be forgiven for saying, Lord, I don't know about that. Maybe next time I have a dream, I'm going to get it tested. <laughs> I'll get three or four confirmations before I enlist after that one. We're enlisted on this rescue mission, and it's perilous. A couple of years ago, I, I had a dream. Not, not quite as dramatic as a man from Macedonia, but it resulted in me going to Cape Town. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, Grant, but there's no persecution in Cape Town. Where's the hardship in Cape Town? 
Gulf waterfront. <laughs> but there have been moments over the last couple of years where I haven't quite been in the stocks, haven't had the flogging on my back, but I've wondered properly about my call. Those of you who lead home groups, those of you who lead children's ministry bands, you know the story, eh? When you pour out your heart for the Lord like this and you, you have people come to you and say, okay, I'm done. I'm, I was in your home group, but actually I found a better one down the road. I, I was in your home group, but now I need to move on to maturity, someone who really handles the meat of the word. A guy came to me the other day who's part of one of our sites down there, and he says, you know what? I've been waiting on God, and I really, I just don't like the vibe in our church. The vibe. I sort of tried to get through the lingo and, and figured he was talking about he just missed the presence of God or something, I'm hoping. But off he went. Other dude who I've spent hours playing golf with, invested a lot, and he's a grumpy old dude. Announced to me that and I've joined the Baptists. Oh, by the way, we're still playing golf next Monday. Heck no. <laughs> why are you going to the Baptists? No, well, they've got a much better children's ministry. So I said, come on, man, we're on the frontier here. You're supposed to be a leader. Yeah, no, but my kids aren't on the frontier. Goodness me, I'm taking. So I said, like, what are you, are you training them to, like, go to Disneyland or what? <laughs> Haven't seen his face since, but. There are times, I mean, I spent maybe, and I'm not exaggerating this, 40 meals with this particular guy who had been so hurt by church 20 years ago, he didn't want anything more to do with the church at all. I invested, I invested, I invested. And in fact, he even got him to the point where he came on a trip with me. I let him preach once or twice. But, but then he asked me a tricky question on a text. It was late at night. And I had a careless response out of my life. You know, there are times like that where you want to just crawl up in a fetal position and say, Lord, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I'm not that sort of introspective guy. So when stuff like that happens to me, I don't really know how to process it too well. There are many guys in this building who know how to do that stuff, but I don't know if I'm like feeling hurt or I'm feeling that I've failed or I'm mourning or I'm hardening my heart or I'm hitting out at them or I'm just, you know, wallowing in self-pity. I don't really, and I don't want to go too far in there because I get a little scared when I look too far down there. But I do know that I'm only halfway through my ministry Thank you very much, Ruth. I'm following the footsteps of Ray Oliver. He's heading to 90. I'm planning to do the same thing. And I, I, I do know that over the years, I've had many times where it hasn't been cool. And this is what has happened over my life. And I thought what I'd like to do, I know you've had an incredible week. But I'd like to talk about this subject as we close. How the Holy Spirit writes your boat again. How the Holy Spirit gets you back in the saddle. 
how the Holy Spirit keeps you going when the bombers come in, when the boat starts to leak. These three things have happened over my life. This is how the Holy Spirit has worked in me. I'd like to share them to you. First, what he does is he shows me my place at the table. Romans chapter 8 says that the Spirit, capital S, testifies with my spirit, little s, that I am a son of God. And a son of God has a place at the table. And so when everything's going bad and people are leaving you, and you're not, another one, when your leadership team gets grumpy or, or feels that they need to come to you, one or, one or two of the guys come to you and just offload, I don't know what they think, like the guy leading the church is like bulletproof or something. It's just, and then it's like, I feel better now. I've like unloaded. I'm so glad you're feeling better. When you've messed up like that, it's a place at the table. Second thing is that he enables me to let go. And the third thing, he empowers me to forgive. Those three things, I'd like to just touch on them as we close. As Ruth said, our family has a new addition. The Crawford dining room table over the last decade has been an adults-only table. My kids had all grown up. But about a year ago, a little boy arrived. He doesn't know his place at the table. He takes every place. It's mess. There's food everywhere. There's noise. But one thing he's certain of is that table is where he belongs. He hasn't got the etiquette sorted out yet, but he knows he's at that table. When you get saved, you get a place not at any table. You get a place at the table of the king. When you've messed up, when you're behaving badly, when you're behaving like a spoiled little toddler, your place is still at the table. I have a son now who's way bigger than me. When he was going through school, he had a particular spot at our table. And he wasn't always happy when he sat there. Sometimes he was grumpy. Other times he was moping. He was just like sorting the food out. Sometimes he'd behave badly. But he wasn't sitting out on the pavement. His place was at the table. He's the son in the house. The illustration I'd like to give very quickly is out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Best one I can think of because I think David understood this place at the table probably better than any of the other Old Testament heroes of our faith. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, there's an account of Jonathan's son who happened to be lame. And the reason he was lame is that his nurse dropped him in the wake of his father's death while they were fleeing from the palace and he became crippled. David's introduced to this guy and it says four times in that chapter that Mephibosheth, that was his name, always ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. David made sure that happened. And this is the reason why David made sure it happened is that decades before, 
he had mediated a covenant with Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan. In those days, a covenant happened like this. A mediator, a representative from a family, happened to be the household of Saul, which was Jonathan, mediated a covenant with the mediator of Jesse's household, which happened to be that of David, and the two of them, and you, you've read the story, there was an exchanging of blood, there was an exchanging of promises, garments, weapons, etc. There's huge symbolism in that. But essentially, the household of Saul was being welded together as if it was the same household as the household of Jesse. Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead. Mephibosheth is living in a place called Lodi Bar in the desert in a rented house owned by a guy called Makir. Looks like he'd grown up because he had a kid. David's wandering around the palace. He's established his kingdom. And I think he must have been looking at the scar on his hand. And he keeps asking the question, isn't there anyone left in this household? Because they should be in my household. Is there anyone left in this household? Because they should be sitting at my table. Eventually, one of the servants, his name is Ziba, steps forward and says, there's, there's this guy, Mephibosheth. David says, bring him. Chapter 9, you see him quivering on the floor. And, and you know he's quivering because the first thing David says to him is, that, don't be afraid. He must have been shaking like a leaf. Knowing that the king now who had taken the throne of his family could quite easily just lop off his head. Now that's a beautiful story, but it's a picture of the new covenant. The Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, is a shadow of the new. The law a shadow. These covenants a shadow. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says Jesus was the mediator of a better covenant. Jesus came and he represented the household of mankind. That's why he used to call himself son of man. And Jesus representing the household of mankind was the mediator of a covenant with the Godhead that joined mankind with the Godhead. And so on the cross, the new covenant was cut and all that symbolism that we see in the Old Testament is enacted on the cross. But here's the deal. Just like Mephibosheth hadn't been thought of by his father or known by the planet when this covenant was taking place, you and me, in the household of mankind, hadn't even darkened the doors of history yet. And yet we've had a mediator set up a connection with the Godhead. And when God came to us, when the Holy Spirit came out like Ziba went out to go and fetch Mephibosheth, and, he, and we were faced with this possibility of being united to this kingdom family, we could easily have said, and Mephibosheth could easily have said, you're not going to kill me? Thank, thank the Lord for that. But I'm out of here. I'm back to Lodi Bar to go and live in the desert and roll around in the dust. Or sit at his table. And so what I'm going to do very quickly, I'm just going to skim through chapter 9 and look at what it's like to sit at a king's table because that's the table you've been invited to. And when I mess things up and I feel as crippled as Mephibosheth, as unworthy as Mephibosheth, 
God says to me, his spirit testifies with my spirit, you're a son and there's a place at the table. My father, my biological father, taught me this truth when I was a teenager. And I find that each time I have a real wobbly, I go to God and I say, Holy Spirit, this truth is what writes my boat. It's a place at the table. Look, look what the table looked like for Mephibosheth. Verse 7 says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. In other words, your place at the table is not because you've earned it, you've been going to church, you're having good quiet times. It's because your mediator Jesus sorted that position out for you. I will restore to you all the lands of your father Saul's. In other words, grandpa who was king has an inheritance and you will always eat at my table. What's the amazing thing about the king's table? The king's sitting at it. And this verse says, you will always sit there. And one of the things he's reminded about here is that you have an inheritance. Kingdom. What we've been hearing about today through Murdoch is kingdom business. At the table of the king, you get the heart of the king. Get perspective of the king. Verse 10 says, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land. So he's talking to Zeba. So he's going to get help to do it because he's a cripple, right? He doesn't know how to till the land. And so that your master's grandson always has food to eat. And so not only are we called on this great rescue mission, but we're given help. If Ubershev had Zeba and his, all his kids to help him. So when you've messed up and your team's deserting you and people think you're the worst thing ever... You've got a place at the table and you've got help. And so Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so it appears to me that Micah, his son, also had a place. Those of you who've got children that some maybe have taken wayward turns, understand this. That he has a place at the table. There's a generational blessing that Stan was alluding to. That you can take before the king. You can talk to your king about that. It's the discussion of the dining room table. Lord, you've given it to me and it's for my family. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Always ate. Daily bread, there. One of the things that freaks most people out is the future and the provision, the stuff we've been listening to in the last session. There's always daily bread at the king's table. It's got nothing to do with the lame guy sitting there. I think that lameness of Mephibosheth is a beautiful picture of our need of him. And so I think David fully understood this idea of a king's table. Remember when he's wrote Psalm 23 he said the Lord sets a table before my enemies so, so it doesn't matter who's coming up against you it doesn't matter what bombers are coming in to take you out there's a table set there and it's not any ordinary table it's a table with a king at the head of it I think he passed it on to his 
son because Solomon, although he was very flawed in so many ways, if the Song of Songs is about him and his bride, the Song of Songs says, you brought me into your banqueting table and your banner over me is love. God's called you, no matter how much you stuff it up, no matter how messy you make that table, you have a place at the table. Just feel prophetically, the people sitting here, maybe right now, saying I was called, but I've disqualified myself. I had a place, but it, it looks like I've messed things up. You've got a place at the table. In the second thing, the Holy Spirit enables me to do is to let it go. I, I find when I am at my worst in ministry, it's when I'm grabbing control of the things that are distressing me. The church finances, if I've got my hands firmly on them, I start to stress out badly. Relationships, if it depends on me, I start to stress out badly. My future, what's it looking like? God, show me, I need a plan. I start to freak out. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He allows you to let go. Helps you to let go. Isaiah 9-7 speaks about the government of God with peace. When you're in charge, you're under distress. Of his government and peace, there's no end. When Jesus introduced himself, especially after his resurrection, his introduction would be peace to you. Where there's the government of God, where he's in charge, where your hands are off and he's in charge, is peace. His name, Hebrews says, is Prince of Peace. And so in Colossians, when Paul's writing to them, he says, let the peace of God rule. Let go, boy, and let the peace of God rule in your life. You say, Grant Joe, but that's easier said than done. How do you practically do that? When I was 24 years old, some of you have heard this story because it's probably the most profound thing that happened to me in my life. I was 24 years old. I went into a very, very dark place in my mind. I was an elder. I'd recently been married. I was juggling too many balls, which has been the sort of anthem of my life. But it had a devastating effect on me right then. I couldn't control the thoughts that were in my mind. As I said, I'm not too introspective, so I couldn't discern whether it was, I don't know, if I got to see a shrink, depression, anxiety, I don't know what, but it was so bad, I was praying every single day, God, take me home. I don't think I would have committed suicide because of a theological conviction, but I was praying that prayer. I honestly didn't think I would make my 27th birthday. I didn't know what to do. The only two people in the world who knew what I was going through. My wife, who thought she'd married someone who got it all together and I was a real mess. And Ray Oliver. Remember when I shared it with Ray Oliver, he rubbed his nose like he, he does when he's thinking. And then he said, Grant, I just don't understand what you're going through. And I can't relate at all. But your mind seems to be the problem. 
So why don't we take your mind off the problem? I'll give you more to preach. I was holding down a secular job at the time. And so I'd absolutely given up. I'd tried everything. I'd read every scripture. I'd prayed my heart out. Everything. And then one day when I was at the bottom of the bottom, I was, I was 24. That's a long time ago. That's 32 years ago. I stumbled into Philippians chapter 4. And this is what it says. You come to God with prayer and thanksgiving. So in other words, say thank you. Come to God in prayer. And he will give you peace. That passes understanding. So there's a peace you can get to through tablets, through therapy. And that's a good peace. There's nothing wrong with it. But he says, the peace I promise you surpasses that peace. I'll give you peace that surpasses your understanding to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And at that moment, I saw something. It was like God saying to me, now have you finished? Let God, uh, do you realize you cannot give peace to yourself? Are you, are you, you realize how useless and how lame you are? Come to me and I will give you peace. I raced inside. My wife was busy cooking at the time. I knelt down in front of her and I said to her, babe, put your hand on my head. She thought I had literally gone mad at this particular point. I said, you're going to do this every single morning, every single night. We're going to take this like medicine. Just put it on my head. I see that peace is a gift. And it's sent to guard my mind. And all that looks like I need to do is let go and thank God that he's got this thing. And over about three weeks, that mist lifted. That was more than 30 years ago. There have been seasons in my life where I've gone through pretty low times. But what the Holy Spirit does to me, he like takes me into a place. And he says, okay, you finished, my boy. Now let go and let the peace of God rule in your life. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He's our guide. And he... How, that, how does that comfort come? One of the ways it comes, the fruit of the Spirit, one of those manifestations of His involvement in our lives is peace to guard our minds. Amazing thing to me as I bring this to a close, when Jesus rose from the dead, He found His disciples, I think, at their most miserable. Just think about it, they'd lost their leader. He comes into the house at night on, the, on that first day of the week, and he says to them, peace, I say to you. And he says it again. He says, peace. Just let me be in charge. And then he says this. He breathed on them. <laughs> Literally like that. I think that's where the televangelists get it from. <laughs> but all you pastors became televangelists a couple of years ago. Eh? <laughs> if you had garlic that night... Graphically, just like Murdoch was showing us bulls and lions and whatever. <laughs> Blows on them. And he says, receive my spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He breathes on it and he says this, receive my spirit. Whoever you forgive is forgiven. What do you mean those Romans that killed you? Whoever you forgive is forgiven.
I landed in Joburg last night. I was heading to Cornerstone. Couldn't get that jolly Uber app to work. And so there was a guy wandering around the car lot there at Oliver Tambo, and he says, like, I'm an Uber driver. So I said, you're yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm like, I know you're not a genuine Uber driver. He says, oh, but I'm better. So I said, well, all I want to know is that have you got something I can pay with a credit card? He said, I come prepared. He whips out his little machine. Well, I had the most hectic ride ever. He was driving on the curb. He was driving down the grass. He was driving fastest delivery, much quicker than DHL, all the way to Cornerstone. <laughs> but en route, I thought I'd just better keep him focused. So I asked him, I said to him, listen, buddy, if you can get me this fast here, can you fetch me in the morning? <laughs> so he says, that depends. I said, what does it depend on? He says, depends if I'm still fighting with my wife. <laughs> I said, oh, dear, what's happening? She says, no, there's a family wedding and I haven't been invited. I said, uh-oh. He says, yeah, we've been fighting for a whole week. So I thought, well, let, let me talk to him about it. He didn't know he was talking to a pastor. So he tells me, and this is what he's been trying to do. He's been trying to teach his wife a lesson. Stupid idiot. I said, I said, how long? I said, how long have you been married? He said, one year. I said, oh, figures figures now the wife's retaliating now he's in big trouble so I thought I would start gently I said to him you know that great hero the hero of our nation Nelson Mandela he taught us that forgiveness is actually a strength it's not a weakness it's quiet but you could check he wasn't he wasn't persuaded so then eventually I moved and I said to him, Jesus, better than Mandela. Not only did he show us that it's a strength, not a weakness, he actually helps us to forgive. So I had a delightful conversation and he says to me when he said goodbye to me, if you see me in the morning, I'm still fighting with my wife and I need session two. If you don't see me in the morning, things are repaired. Well, I had to get a lift with one of the Cornerstone elders this morning. That's all I'm saying. The Holy Spirit. See, let's just talk about Mandela's forgiveness for a moment. His, his forgiveness, honestly, I think God used him to heal our land. Profound. Profound. But not impossible. Because his forgiveness really was bilateral forgiveness. In other words, I'm going to forgive you guys, but you better behave now. In other words, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to be the bigger. I'm going to be the stronger. I'm going to forgive. But you toe the line and things are going to work out. Profound, but not unreasonable. But that's not the forgiveness that Jesus was talking about. He was talking about unilateral forgiveness. You forgive regardless of what they say to you. Regardless of what comes back. Remember when the guy was lowered through the roof? He didn't know he needed forgiveness, hadn't asked for forgiveness, didn't know that you know, Jesus could give him forgiveness, and yet Jesus forgives him. People are incredulous and say, why are you forgiving him? He's supposed to be healed. Jesus said, so you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive this way. Stand up and walk. When he was on the cross, 
He forgave in a way. The people didn't know they needed forgiveness. They thought they were doing God a favor. And yet his forgiveness flowed. And what that forgiveness did, it opened heaven. The curtain was torn. When that forgiveness happens, when there's, there's forgiveness that way, Jesus stays free and the people are free because heaven is opened. There are a couple of things the Bible teaches us open heaven. One is tithing. You'll read about that in Malachi. Heaven's open when you tithe, when you trust God that way. Another one is forgiveness. Stephen, getting murdered, looks up toward heaven. He sees heaven open just as it opened over Jesus. You see Jesus standing. Why is he standing? He normally would be seated. He's standing. Maybe he's standing at the martyr. That's possible. But I think it's far more likely that he's watching someone forgive like he forgave. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think far more important even than over Stephen, it's who's receiving that. Heaven is open now over a bigoted, horrible little man called Saul. A couple of chapters later, why? Heaven is open because that forgiveness has flown. Saul is saved. When you're persecuted, sometimes people leave our churches, leave our home groups, leave our ministry, butcher us because we've been stupid. In fact, most times probably for me. But regardless of why the bullets have come, why the bombers have come in, Jesus says, it's impossible to forgive without this. Receive the Holy Spirit. And as you forgive, it sets you free and sets them free. The Holy Spirit. Maybe let's stand as we, we close. You've been commissioned. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to take you out or at least intimidate you enough to crawl up in a fetal position and say, pick somebody else. I'm sure there were many Englishmen when King George said, I want you to enlist your boat. They said, no, not me, sir. Not me. Our rescue mission is way more eternal. Way more consequential. And you're not just enlisted once. I believe some of you are being enlisted right now. And what the Holy Spirit does is he keeps us in the game for our good and the good of the kingdom. You've been born for this. To tap out is to live a non-supernatural, a non-kingdom life by sight. The stakes are way too high. Place at the table. Let go. And receive my spirit to forgive those who've put you there. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, for every person in this room, I pray that you would underline these eternal truths of the gospel. That we eat with you. That we at your table. That you empower us. You give us peace. For those right now who've who's smarting with hurt and disillusionment, I pray, Holy Spirit, great comforter, 
that you would come upon them. Lord, those that need to go and forgive, Lord, I pray for power to forgive. Even if it's going to require facing persecution, Lord, I pray for the power to forgive. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of being enlisted by you. Amen.